out of 320 housing units, only 20 are affordable. And I was looking, not that I would live there. I was looking out of curiosity at the the units and a studio is like anywhere from 2,500 to $3,000, which is just like out of my price range. And like, I have a full-time job, like I have a mask, like it's, it's absurd. And only 20 units are affordable. And I think that, you know, when we talk about TOD and we talk about the equity considerations, like how is it that only 20 units out of 320? And I know like the 80 housing units for veterans is like really great, but like, come on, like 300 market rate units in an area that like, there's a, a lot of young people going into the city that like can't afford that. Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm not. Welcome to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast and the Urban Planning is Not Boring podcast. This is Jasmine and you have Nemo. And then I will let our co-podcasters also introduce themselves. Hey, Sam. (laughs) Hi. Um, I'll go first. Um, I'm Sam. I live in the Bay Area. And I work in transportation planning for a consulting firm. And I met Nat when we were in our master's of urban planning programs at USC. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Crada, also former master of urban planning student at USC, which is where Sam and I met, as she mentioned. And currently I'm working in affordable housing development in Culver City in Los Angeles. And the ladies have a podcast titled Urban Planning is Not Boring, and they've been running for how many years have you guys been running your podcast? Like one year? Yeah, I think about a year. And they're super accomplished. Tons of episodes. You can find them on all of the podcast streaming platforms. But first, how is everyone doing? Nemo, I will start with you. How are you doing? I am well. You know, right before this call, I caved and turned on the heat. (laughs) I have been cold ever since the autumn equinox and I was like I'm not gonna record this episode uncomfortable or a little chilly so I'm just like and I also I'm a little stuffy today too so um excuse my excuse my voice but how are you doing I'm doing fine um LA has been extremely warm I was home on the east coast in Jersey like three weeks ago and it was raining and cold and I hadn't seen the sun in like five days and I came back to LA and I was like oh this is why I pay so much money in rent um I understand (laughs) so everything else is going fine Nat how are you doing I'm doing really good actually unlike you really wishing the sun would go away and that it's gonna be chilly and rainy soon um did have the random experience of it pouring down rain in the middle of the night last night. And I was very happy about that. But yeah, just doing really good. Yeah, the weather's been like really weird in California. I feel like it rained one day and now it's hot. Yeah, um, yeah. but I'm doing well. I feel like I, I started my job a couple months ago. So I'm like finally getting in swing of things and like figuring out how everything works, being full time employee and planning. So It's been a busy, overwhelming, but like, I'm excited to be here. Excited to have this conversation with you both. Yeah, thank you both um, so much for joining. As Jasmine said, you know, we've seen um, your podcast and and the the tremendous growth over the year and definitely related as Jasmine and I also met 
um, during our academic urban planning studies. Um, so to see two other women with the similar mission of just trying to translate urban planning and its relevance in the world um, has been great to watch. And now, now we get to connect virtually. Um, but we will be talking about transit-oriented development. So for the planners who are listening, they heard about this for decades now. <laughs> they see it, we assess it, we think about the land use and all of those things. But um, for those who may not be in the field, this may be a completely new term. So we'll give the history, we'll explain why transit-oriented development, also known as TOD, why it exists, some of the challenges. Um, we'll look at examples across the country on the West Coast, Midwest, East Coast, um, to really paint a picture as much as we can through audio to paint a picture of what you'll see um, and how to you know understand TOD and think about it moving forward in your life. But before we do, I just wanted to hear from everyone what some examples of TOD you have in your life, whether it's maybe a place where you worked or frequented or lived. Um, I know for myself, I have fond memories living across from the waterfront metro station in DC, um, which is now, which was in the stage of when the wharf development was being built um, before phase one wharf. So I was able to walk to the wharf fan you know, be as late as I wanted to to work <laughs> and cut it close because I got hop on a train for 10 minutes um, and then also lived uh, near uh, the Fort Tot and Metro Station um, in Northeast D.C. Um, what about you, Jasmine? I have never lived that close to transit. I'll talk about Atlanta. I feel like on this show, I'm always talking bad about Atlanta transit and I really apologize, but it's really bad. Um, I lived geographically. I should have been in a TOD. It should have been a TOD. Like I lived less than like 0.3 of a mile from uh, Marta station, but my part, the highway was in between us. So I had to like walk under the highway overpass like literally under the valley and through the woods to get to the train and so instead I would take like the bus just that like two blocks up the street and then get on the train and so that was my closest thing to living in a transit-oriented development but it inspired my master's thesis on that neighborhood and how they could have done a lot better and looked at all the different places in which they've like done stuff with highway overpasses to make them more pedestrian friendly. So sad face, but we'll see what happens for Atlanta. It sounded disorienting. I remember it was like the opposite. Yeah. It was like transit disoriented development. Like we don't want you to ride this train. How about you, Nat, Sam? Um, I'll kick it off. I also like Jasmine have never lived in a transit oriented area whatsoever. I live in the But suburbs. no, but but where you were living in LA, where we uh, I Natalie moved into my place and I was like yes. we were pretty close to the metro. Yes, but mm, mm. like a mile, like a mile. Yeah. That's um, too far. <laughs> I took the I'm bus. Really sorry, too far mile buffer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm not walking a mile in my high heels as I'm on my way to work to go get on the train. But I will say um, in my previous job, I worked for LA Metro in Los Angeles. And we all we did was transit-oriented development in my department. And so I'm very familiar with a lot of projects across Los Angeles um, that are just making really, really big efforts in trying to utilize spaces for infill development on top or near uh, metro stations. Um, so there is, you know, so many projects that I could highlight. Um, but 
I will say that, yes, technically Sam and I did live in a transit oriented uh, development area. Um, however, I think the ideal when you kind of consider transit oriented development is kind of about 0.25 miles from transit before you're really saying that that's successful TOD, uh, in my opinion. But Sam, I'm sure you have uh, a few. <laughs> well, I'm right now I'm living at home, which is the suburbs, um, my parents' house. So it's kind of a bummer. I take transit into work, but I have to drive there. Um, but my office is like three minute walk from like two different train stations. And I'm hoping that sooner rather than later, I can move into San Francisco because the transit there is like so much better than like where I grew up in the suburbs. So I'm really excited for that. And I feel like, yeah, it was not the most convenient thing in LA to get to the Metro, but there was like some bike shares nearby. The bus runs straight there. So if you really want to like do it, like there were some days where I would, I'm not gonna lie, I would drive the mile and park my car on the street at the Metro just because I was like, I missed the bus. I'm going to be late or tired. I don't want to do it, but it, you can do it. It's definitely not the most convenient option. Um, so Hopefully in San Francisco, I'll have, I'll have that 0.25 mile buffer. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like I think um, in our episode last season, when um, Jasmine and um, Nina and Mudia were talking about how to get to where you need to go after mm-hmm. flying into LAX, and it, it, yeah. the consensus was you can do it. Does it? <laughs> does it make sense? CBD. Yeah, LA Transit is something special. That's a topic for a different <laughs> because yeah, I've. I'm a, like, I'm a planner. I will ride the train. I will ride the bus. But like, I've lived in LA for almost two years now and I have never been on it <laughs> one time. And so that says a lot about the level of commitment you need to have to be willing to, yeah. to do it. But without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Uh, we'll start with defining TOD, defining transit-oriented development and I will pass it over to our guest from Urban Planning is Not Boring to kind of give us that overview for our listeners in the field and not in the field. Yeah, thank you so much. And I will just preface by saying that I thought this was going to be me educating the listeners about TOD, but I happened to learn a significant amount when uh, just making sure that I was doing enough research on this topic to have a cohesive, um, you know, discussion about what the definition of TOD is and and kind of the history overview of TOD. So I also do want to make a note that all information I'm discussing uh, during my section is going to be based on um, the UC Berkeley paper. It was written by Ian Carlton in 2007, um, and it's titled Histories of Transit-Oriented Development, Perspectives on the Development of the TOD Concept. I think it was a very, very well-written paper and just gave a really, really good overview of what TOD is, as well as just a plethora of other information. Um, And so for listeners, if you want to continue reading it, um, we can link it on our page, etc. But I'll jump in by just kind of first going over the definition of TOD as well as a quick brief history. So we have Peter Calthorpe, who essentially codified the concept of transit-oriented development in the late 1980s. 
And while there was a promotion of similar concepts uh, that were contributed to the design, TOD became a fixture of modern planning when Calcourt published The New American Metropolis in 1993. And we had already, the reason why they say that Peter Calcourt essentially codified the concept and didn't create the concept is because we were already witnessing in the built environment that TOD had already existed. New York is a really great example of the boroughs uh, near transit. And so his codification came later on in 1993 when he wrote a paper and a book um, that was based on specifically the concept of transit-oriented development. And so TOD has been defined generally as a mixed-use community that encourages people to live near transit services and to decrease their dependence on driving. And Calthorpe saw it as a neo-traditional guide to sustainable community design. So beyond its definition of the built form, it was also a community design theory that promised to address a myriad of social issues that were related to a kind of car-centric environment. Some of the key components of TOD are... I'm going to just briefly discuss them. So it's to organize growth on a regional level to be compact and transit supportive, place commercial housing, jobs, parks, and civic uses within walking distance of transit stops, create a pedestrian-friendly street network that directly connects local destinations, provide a mix of housing types, densities, and costs, preserve sensitive habitat, riparian zones, and high-quality open space, and make public spaces the focus of building orientation and neighborhood activity. And I want to preface that these guidelines are, and the key components of TOD, this is based on... um, Peter Calthorpe's codification of this concept. So there are different agencies, different entities that do identify different guidelines for TOD, but him as the essential originator of really codifying TOD, this is um, what I wanted to highlight. Kind of jumping into the brief history of transit-oriented development, there are many individuals that state that the concept of TOD really took off in the 1990s. And there were several conceptualizations of TOD, as I mentioned, in areas like New York and Los Angeles. Um, But they had more of an attention and effort built on transit-oriented communities and more so on real estate development as a spur from transit growth. So rail lines, rail stations, subway stations, et cetera. So... The beginning of transit-oriented development was spurred in the early 20th century during the electrification of the streetcar, which had incentivized developer entrepreneurs to explore accessibility of land near transit on the periphery of cities. And so we often view it as transit becoming an enabler for real estate development since jobs were more accessible due to the increased efficiency of transit. And that's because of the electrification of the streetcar. Um, However, unfortunately, as people who are listening and as we all know, uh, transit began to decline due to the rise of the automobile, and that became the primary transportation mode through the early half of the 20th century. So David Jones, who is the author of The American Journey from Mass Transit to Mass Motorization, 1890 to 2000, he kind of pointed out that prior to 1916, The U.S. was the world's leader in transit rail miles, streetcar ridership, and almost every other transit metric, primarily motivated by the profits reaped by real estate developers that installed streetcar lines. 
Yeah, when I was, um, you know, thinking about this and recalling that fact, it's not something I think about every day in terms of the highways and transit mm-hmm. colliding, but it took me back to like Scooby-Doo, like at the end of the episode where it's like, dang, we would have got away with it if it wasn't for those mangy highways. Like, yep. <laughs> like yep. you know, we could have been a lot further than we were. Now we're looking at examples of, you know, Europe and across the world of their transit systems. And we're like, we, we hustled backwards a bit. Absolutely. This is something that Sam and I talk about often. And one very interesting fact is we were one of the, you know, we had already established such an advanced transit system that was turned away by the, you know, enhancement of the automobile. And we are actually now recreating transit along the same and original lines that once existed but at about 10 times the cost. And we talk about this all the time. It was, you know, just like you said, if it wasn't for the car, why? (laughs) Um, I mean, like LA really only exists because the rail brought people to LA. And now it's like, yeah, we are putting the rail lines where they used to be. Like, we're just, we're like recreating, like, obviously it's newer, but like we're recreating what used to be there. And it is like so backwards when I think about it. I'm like, dang it. You're so close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the kind of nail in the coffin did become the development of Eisenhower's interstate in 1956, which led to the mass decline in transit use. Um, And so Eisenhower's interstate is our our highway system today. Um, So most of these auto-oriented transit systems failed to achieve ridership goals and required substantial operating subsidies. A typical transit agency had recovered about less than one third of its costs in fare box revenues. And so transit agencies soon learned that they could lease their land to generate revenue. So due to this mass decline in transit ridership, transit agencies weren't making the same dollars that they once were. And so trying to find alternative ways to make income, they came up with the concept of um, something known as joint development. So Their subsidizers, local, state, and federal governments saw large-scale land development as a means to reduce reliance on subsidies. And so subsequently, these transit agencies created small real estate leasing departments within the organization. And so this is what is referred to as joint development because it is accomplished through a joint partnership between the transit agency and then a private real estate developer. And it's in quotes, designed to decrease the cost of operating or constructing public transportation systems, stations, or improvements through creative arrangements. And so this was one of them. And we had studies in the 1970s that did highlight the significant positive synergies that came from joint development and found that transit ridership was in fact related to the intensity of development near transit stations. So there became this kind of, through these studies, there was significant reasoning behind why it would be a good idea to start developing near transit different kinds of things not just housing but commercial public parks etc and then in the 1980s there was this large movement behind anti-sprawl and anti-suburb which became a catalyst for more focused attention and advocacy on high density pedestrian oriented development so unlike prior periods you had this disparate entities that sought synergies through extensive coordination. They proposed doing so on a neighborhood scale similar to development-oriented transit, but they wanted it to, like, instead of having transit-supportive developments, they wanted transit-oriented development. So they didn't want development near transit. They wanted 
this kind of synergistic relationship where you were having your new rail lines coming in and you were simultaneously building it synergistically with these systems. So it wasn't intended originally to be infill development. It was meant to go in tandem with the development of new transit lines that were coming in. And so the overlap between neo-traditional neighborhoods and the provision of transit services was readily apparent. And it was out of this period in the history of transit that the concept of TOD essentially emerged. I think no, that concept ahead. of using it as a way to like expand the transit station versus infill housing, which basically means like the neighborhood is developed and there are certain pots plots of land that are underutilized. Maybe it's a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a gas station. Maybe it's a one story retail store or maybe in some cases nothing at all. Filling in that land with a more higher density and more profitable use. I think and that's kind of the way that we've been doing it now. We'll see we'll see examples in the Bay Area, in Jersey, and in Chicago, where these are already existing transit stations that have land under them where the density doesn't make sense in relation to mm -hmm. the station being right there. And so there may be single family houses immediately adjacent to a train station that could get you downtown in 40 minutes. Well, that should be used for a higher use, at least 30 or 40 apartment units can be utilized in that space. Absolutely. You know, the origination of transit-oriented development came from this concept that it was never intended for development to be just kind of an afterthought. They wanted it to be simultaneous with the development of transit, especially because, as we said, transit had been kind of ripped out from underneath the, you know, the cityscape when the cars and automobiles and highways were being developed. And so the recreation of transit-oriented development was meant to be in tandem with you were developing new transit lines. So why aren't we also simultaneously building communities around this transit? Um, and it's a really, really interesting concept. But as I'm going to kind of dive in, there are a little bit of some challenges and some, you know, problems that have kind of spawned since this concept was codified. And so... I'll just jump right in to kind of discuss auto orientation. And so while I can acknowledge, well, I want to acknowledge also that the reason why a lot of people in the 1950s were fleeing the city center was due to many horrific challenges that were centered around, you know, historic redlining and other kind of racist intentions to drive people away from the city center and then keep this urban pocket um, kind of alive, but also not really investing in the city center at the time. This is like one big, big challenge that we've seen kind of with the urban form, especially more recently. But auto orientation was an enabler and an incentive for many individuals to also leave the city center because they now had the opportunity and the means to do so. And so these individuals were leaving the city center to move into the suburbs, as I had kind of addressed above. And so this is where we kind of began seeing this American dream center around owning the single family home with the white picket fence and the two car garage. And, you know, that's the dream. And it's all centered around the car and, you know, all of these kind of problematic concepts that we're realizing now. Um, and so today we also know that the suburbs are a cheaper option regarding housing affordability, particularly in Southern California, I want to preface. Um, and I'm sure it's the case in other areas as well, but specifically... <laughs> I know that it's Southern California. It's a real problem. <laughs> um, and so the only problem was that while housing was more affordable in the suburbs, 
jobs were not relocating to the suburbs. They were staying within the city center. And so you, and this is due to many different factors, agglomeration, et cetera. Um, so you had individuals who were living in the suburbs and commuting into the city centers to go to work. And this was seen as a huge problem for many reasons. Um, traffic congestion being one of the largest especially in suburban areas that have little to no access to alternative modes of transportation, as we kind of discussed in the beginning of this episode. And so this leads to significant commute times for individuals that live farther away from their jobs. And because of this, as we get into the kind of flow of urban planning, increased commute then leads to an increase in vehicle miles traveled, which is obvious. And that leads then to higher levels of emissions released into the air by these vehicles traveling so frequently and such long distances on the road. And so this becomes a kind of twofold problem that involves both transportation and the environment. So in addition to those challenges, there are also challenges surrounding quality of life. And this is a big thing when it comes to transit-oriented development and the origination of this concept was quality of life. Because spending such a large portion of your day traveling from your home to your job in the central city takes away from urban planning concepts that focus on essentially the kind of live work play atmosphere of what a city should be for somebody. And so with so much emphasis on auto oriented design, the quality of life for many kind of felt like an afterthought for a lot of folks. And so the creation of walkable pedestrian friendly communities near accessible transit and jobs was an ideal that felt a unachievable due to the extreme focus on designing cities around the automobile. And so the concept of transit-oriented development was then intended to solve this challenge by providing housing options located in close proximity to transit and other amenities in order to remove that reliance on the automobile, getting us to our jobs and other desired locations, but in the same place that we lived. It seems like transit-oriented development was like the concept of it is this wonderful thing, right? You you place, you locate housing near stations so that people can, one, access um, different destinations across the region without having to drive their car, which is good for the environment, good for traffic congestion. It builds community, all these things. But Sam, what are some challenges associated with transit-oriented development? Because it sounds like, pop the apartment building next to the station, people are going to ride the train and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I can jump into this. Um, I would say one of the big ones is the right at which TOD um, has been developed. Um, There are a lot of things that impede TOD, um, including like parking, uh, like free and excessive parking, which I have talked about a lot at work, actually, Um, like there's a professor at UCLA that talks a ton about the cost of free parking. And um, yeah, that's like reiterated again and again at work Um, for pedestrian environments around transit, poor quality transit service, which I'm sure a lot of, you know, if you live in LA, you are aware that the transit is not the best quality. um, Sometimes mixes of land uses near transit, um, lack of transit link between housing and jobs, um, the fact that transit lines were built around or after the automobile, so getting transit in close proximity to jobs um, can be a challenge, Um, and antiquated zoning codes, which I think zoning is a huge deterrent to TOD. And that's starting to change, especially, I think, in California, but for a long time, being able to put housing in a place that wasn't zoned for housing was like, absolutely not. Like you cannot do that. And so now with changes, that's becoming easier. Um, But 
yeah, that was like a huge challenge for a long time. Right now, an interesting place that we're seeing posts or like at the tail end of COVID, a lot of people aren't necessarily commuting as much. And so the transit ridership is like the, I think, biggest reason that you would put TOD, like you want people to be able to take transit. And if people aren't leaving as much or they're not commuting to the city, like if I was if I was living, you know, in the suburbs and I wasn't having to go into the office three or four days a week, like I wouldn't necessarily be taking transit. And I think that's like a huge challenge that we're kind of coming to see now. And it's just like part of this changing environment of um, like commuting and work from home and all that. And so I think understanding that those travel patterns and then just like getting everyone on board for TOD are like also that's also a big challenge i know a lot of transit oriented development like particularly in the more suburban areas of california can get a lot of backlash people do not want big apartment big dense you know apartment buildings near their single family homes they're you know i think nimbyism is something that we've talked about several times on the podcast and is a like it can be a really big deterrent because you know elected officials they have their constituents they want to keep everyone happy, but you can't do that. And so I think that, you know, those are kind of a lot of the big issues that TOD faces. Now, I don't know if you wanted to add on to any, anything that I might've missed. No, um, I think there's just, you know, when it comes to TOD and the challenges, as you highlighted, it is the, not only the limited ridership, I think across the U.S. we're at 3%. Um, and in certain areas that's increasing, but as you highlighted, when you don't have significant demand for transit, providing housing kind of, especially when you're trying to bargain with multiple entities to justify putting housing near transit, if ridership is not a key component or ridership is not high enough, then there there are a lot of entities that aren't going to feel like this is, you know, really justifiable. And because of that, I think we've seen TOD not being developed at the rate that we would hope for. And I also think in, especially in the public sector, transit agencies are not developers. So there are a lot of partnerships that have to happen when you're building transit-oriented development. Because of that, transit-oriented development takes a significant period of time. So I work in private real estate development right now. Our projects have are typically being constructed within two to three years. That's our timeline. And we stick to it pretty stringently. When you're dealing with a public agency who's partnering with a private developer, what we were seeing, at least um, at the at the time that I was working, what we were reviewing is that our projects were taking a significantly longer time. We had an average, I think, there were some projects that took 11 years to build. And so that's because you're navigating not only just with a private developer who's reaching out to all their subcontractors and, gen and general contractors, but you're partnering with a private developer as a public agency. And there are about a thousand different review processes that have to happen. There's a lot of committee meetings that have to be held. There's a lot more process that goes into that. And so that makes TOD extremely challenging to build at, you know, in a scalable way. So because of that, I think it presents a challenge because you're not necessarily providing the housing the scale, which is the desire for TOD, is really to be very high density, constant development that's happening. Because then the hope is that you build the housing near the transit, people take transit. And I don't think we're seeing that because there's not an opportunity to build it at the rate that that is the hope, essentially. 
No, I think um, you guys really hit all of them. Um, I was going to say, I think just in doing research for this episode, TOD, I think the big question around it is like, if we build it, will they come? And there's yeah. so much uncertainty and um, a lot of uh, questions. And even um, Sam mentioned the NIMBYism, not in my backyard. Um, you know, I even think about examples that I've seen both living in Seattle. Yeah, 11 years is right because I left there like almost eight years ago and I still see the parts of the light rail under construction. Um, yeah. And I remember doing community meetings when I was in community college back then um, and still not seeing it come to fruition. Um, and then thinking about um, places where, you know, one station has the TOD, has the dense, has the density. And then a station that is walking distance has a lot more single family homes just literally as, you know, down the street and it's a completely different environment. And I think the ridership reflects that. And I think, um, you also mentioned COVID. Um, so overall, just, we've seen the landscape of transit change as well as the landscape of housing, affordability, both for renters and homeowners, um, changing at such rapid rates in the last two years? I think the a bigger, I think a challenge that I've seen with some TOD projects and why we'll get into it, but the city of Chicago has like an ETOD model, an equitable trans-oriented development model is because there have been a lot of transit-oriented development projects that have been the catalyst for gentrification in a lot of neighborhoods. Um, you have an, a station in pick a pick a neighborhood, south side of Chicago, eastern Brooklyn, southeast DC, any of these other uh predominantly minority neighborhoods that are near high speed rail or subway stations that are a desirable station if someone would look at the neighborhood and not discount the people who live in that neighborhood and so some developers have done that they've used the station as an idea as a concept of transit oriented development and then all of a sudden the neighborhood's rents are two times as much as they were and all of these different amenities that did not exist there before are now there and the demographic of that community has shifted due to costs mm -hmm. and all these other things and so I think that for me, that's always been the uh, biggest challenge I've seen discussed around TOD. It's like, okay, we do want people to ride the train. We do want to solve these environmental issues that driving and the pollution from automobiles has created. And we want to have denser, walkable, more neighborhood focused communities. How can we do that? with new development while maintaining the culture and integrity of the neighborhood that was here. And I think that's been the challenge because development does change neighborhoods. Yeah. You brought up a really good point that made me think of something I was reading about um, during my research, just kind of deep dive into this topic. But I think your point becomes really clear as gentrification or the challenges associated with gentrification due to transit-oriented development, but more so the fact that I think transit-oriented development does not have any agreed-upon guidelines. There is no entity that has an agreed-upon set of terms as to what the desired outcome of a transit-oriented development project is. If you look at any public agency that's building transit-oriented development, none of it will have the same kind of desired outcomes or the same guidelines or steps that are being followed. And I think that that's really one kind of overarching challenge with transit-oriented development is that when you don't have an agreement as to 
what these very, very specific guidelines need to entail when you're developing something, you do start realizing the challenges of things like gentrification that might not have been acknowledged, but are being realized post-development. And so I think that's something, and it's hard, obviously, you can't have no public agency is going to agree with, you know, multiple entities. But I do think transit-oriented development, if it had a set of guidelines that you could really follow, I think we would kind of realize ways that we could address concerns surrounding equity, efficiency, and all of those kind of other challenges that are faced. So we have a couple of examples we want to talk through on examples of transit-oriented development. We tried to go coast to coast and then hit up the Midwest and Chicago. TBD on if we're going to ever get to the Southeast in a good uh, example, but we'll leave that where it is. Um, And so just walk us through excuse me, high level on a transit oriented development on the West Coast. I think we're going to start with BART, which is Bay Area, rapid transit in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then uh, we'll swing all the way east to New Jersey. And then we'll jump back to Chicago before Nemo talks us through kind of a national transit oriented development model that the FTA is working through. Yeah. And I think, um, Kind of going to what we were just saying, the reason that I chose this one specifically is I think that there's a lot to critique about it and and, and a lot of things that are good about it. So um, BART, as Jasmine said, is Bay Area Rapid Transit, and it kind of runs from the peninsula, which is like the south south of San Francisco, into the city, to Oakland, um, further into the East Bay Um, like to Walnut Creek area. And for people not from the Bay Area, I know this doesn't mean anything, but I just want to give, like it goes a lot of places in the Bay Area. We're going to map it. We'll map it out for everyone when we post the episode. Amazing. Um, And so Millbright is the Southern terminus of BART um, on the Western side of the Bay. And it's my closest BART station and the one that I usually go to to commute. And recently they have not yet finished, but are very close to finishing a transit-oriented development that has um, 80 housing units for veterans specifically, 320 general housing units, uh, a big hotel, which is, I think, because it's very close to the airport and it's BART goes from San Francisco airport to Milbury. So I think that that could be a good idea. Um, and then a, a lot of office space, 150,000 square feet of office. And I think one of the things that is critiquable about it is that there's out of 320 housing units, only 20 are affordable. And I was looking, not that I would live there. I was looking out of curiosity at the the units and a studio is like anywhere from 2,500 to $3,000, which is just like out of my price range and like, I have a full-time job. Like I have a master, like it's, it's absurd and only 20 units are affordable. And I think that, you know, when we talk about TOD and we talk about the equity considerations, like how is it that only 20 units out of 320? And I know like the 80 housing units for veterans is like really great, but like, come on, like 300 market rate units in an area that like, there's a, a lot of young people going into the city that like can't afford that. And so I think that is its own thing. But I think it's important to like, just take a little bit of a step back and look at why BART is doing this. In 2016, they adopted a TOD policy. And funny enough, one of their tenants is affordability, serve households of all income levels. So I kind of want to say like, do better. Um, 
that's literally in your policy. And then there was a, a California assembly bill that basically would change any zone, any anything within, I think, half a mile of an existing or planned BART station, any parcel that's at least 75% within a half mile of it, the zoning like does not matter. Like you can put housing, um, you can put transit-oriented development, like mixed-use community, mixed-use development. And so I think that that's a really big reason that BART has in the last few years, like been really, really ramping up on their transit-oriented development throughout the Bay Area. Um, and they have like kind of this new, also general plan land use designation for areas that are within the transit-oriented development overlay district. And so now like there is kind of required maximum or minimum and maximum um, floor area ratios and densities, which I think is really great because like you said, we don't wanna be putting like these kind of smaller uses, these less dense uses, like we really wanna buckle down on the density that we can get around transit. And so I think like, it's really great to like, look at what the agencies are doing, critique it, like and kind of be aware of what's going on. And yeah, I think that this one, it's, it's an interesting one to me, mostly because I live here. And I think BART is one of the, one of the many, um, I mean, one of the few transit providers that own a lot of land. Like mm -hmm. when you pull up to a BART station, the station is like in the middle of a sea of parking. Yes. Like it's yes. just sitting yep. in a parking lot. And so mm -hmm. they, I'm presuming that they own that parking lot. And mm -hmm. so it seems like y'all could offload a lot of this a lot of these acres of land and put some housing right and you could still maintain mm -hmm. your same parking if you wanted to and put it underground or whatever but like you are sitting on acres of land at every single station especially yeah. my cousins live in oakland when i'm at the oakland stations i'm like all of this parking is for what mm -hmm. like what are we doing <laughs> yeah and it's really interesting I, i'm actually doing some studies for bart on tod and just like looking at like the parking utilization now versus pre-covid is like night and day like it was like oh it's full by 9 a.m versus now it's like maybe 20 percent. so it's like mm -hmm. shifting from like providing all this parking that like not many people are using anymore to like providing affordable housing where it's like if they are living there they will probably take more advantage of the transit it's really interesting to kind of look at that and i feel like i don't know much outside of california but i'm sure that that pattern of like less people parking at transit is throughout the country. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty similar throughout. I think BART is just so interesting. Like they own so much land. It's like yeah. the MTA could never, like they own nothing. And BART, you have all of this and you're doing nothing with it. I'm confused. Yeah. And uh, with all the parking, it's like, are you not embarrassed yeah. of this? <laughs> of what's what's created? I've started incorporating TikTok into my episode research. So I did see some TikToks <laughs> about um, BART, TOD, and the, and the parking lots and the commentary mm -hmm. where were funny. Um, well, just to keep moving along, um, we're going to hop over to the Midwest um, and look at Chicago. As Jasmine mentioned earlier, their ETOD concept um, or equitable transportation oriented development. Um, and in the research, I really, it really seems that Chicago and Austin and Texas are really two cities leading the charge on equitable trans transit oriented development. Um, and uh, 
you know, for a lot of the reasons we just discussed earlier, it is really important. Um, and the, the way that the Center for Neighborhood Technology, also based in Chicago, defined it is uh, equitable transit-oriented development works to ensure that people of all incomes experience the benefits of de dense, mixed-use, pedestrian-oriented development near train and bus stops. And I thought it was so interesting that they focused um, solely on income. Now, a lot can be extrapolated from looking at one's income. Um, but I think for a lot of the you know history and what we were just discussing about affordable housing, I do think to, spec to spec get specific about those income and the equitableness of it for this purpose is important. And I know we've seen a lot with um, there's there's an equity for everything. Like you can have equity, you know, age, um, race, gender. And I think to look at this and focus on income, I think makes their goal really targeted. Um, and so they've put out a lot of plans and um, has worked collaboratively with cities and neighborhoods. So I'm excited to see more of what they come out with and really setting an example for the for the country. Two things on City of Chicago. They did a really good presentation at ULI. It was, I guess, a joint. It's funny that you bring up Austin because I think it was a joint panel with the city of Chicago and Austin on ETOD. So Woodlawn Station is one of the stations that they highlight on the ETOD website for Centers for Neighborhood Technology. It's a project that's already completed um, in the south side of Chicago near Hyde Park. If you know Chicago, it's near uh, one of the University of Chicago's kind of campus buildings and it's kind of situated in between uh, Jackson Park, which is on the water one of the lakes and then washington park which is a huge uh park there and washington park has the disabled museum which is like an african-american history museum so it's a pr predominantly like black neighborhood in chicago um i mapped it earlier today just to see like how long it would take to get from that station to the loop which is chicago's downtown it's like their huge corporate financial center and it's 34 minute train ride with like eight stops so it's real quick um to get there and this particular property is literally adjacent to the station like the stairs to walk up to the station or to the elevator is like on the exterior of their building so it's literally as oriented to the train station as it could possibly be um and so it's a 70 unit uh apartment building 20 of the units are rent restricted so keeping with that number 20 but a bigger share of the the units than the 320 building and then three retail spaces on the ground floor which i think is a really big important piece of tod is having that mixed use between the resi and the retail because you don't want it to be kind of that commuter type vibe where like you everybody lives here but we don't do anything else here during the weekends um the I like this project because it was replacing outdated affordable housing. So the developer is a nonprofit preservation of affordable housing. They're a nonprofit owner developer and they acquired a larger um, HAP contract building, which is 100 percent Section 8 building. And they are slowly in that neighborhood mixing the incomes of various new developments. And so that has its own level of struggle um, because it was 500 units of 100% affordable being temporarily at least replaced with 20 rent income restricted units. And so they have a long way to go to like replace those 500 units. Um, and I liked that there were all these green environmental features of the building itself. So it was not only a mixed use building with affordable and market rate, but it also had 
solar and then it was next to the train station. So like check, 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 check all the boxes to New Jersey. So we had an East Coast option and I could have did New York. I could have did D.C. I could have did Boston. But I was like, let's go to New Jersey Transit. And so Dover, New Jersey, nobody's going to know where it is. North Jersey suburban town. And so New Jersey's transit providers, NJ Transit, and it's mostly a commuter rail system bringing people from all parts of the state to Newark, Jersey City, and New York Penn Station. That's like the purpose of it. And so Dover is um, west of New York and west of the city of Newark, but kind of on the same, like it's north still, it's not like a southern city. So it's like northeast of Manhattan. The median household income there is slightly lower than the average of the state of New Jersey, but um, there is... A lower percentage of bachelor's degrees in the state of New Jersey average by about a third. So I think only 15% of the population in Dover have bachelor's degrees or higher compared to like 45% for the state of New Jersey. And then there's a greater population in the workforce and a greater population, greater percentage of the population of females working in Dover than like overall in the state of New Jersey. The population is small though. It's like 18,000 people in this little town. Um, and then in terms of the mixture of like race and ethnicity, 17% white, non-Hispanic, 68% Hispanic, 10% black, 2% Asian. And all of those are less than the average for the state of New Jersey, except for the population of Hispanic. So there's more, there's a greater percentage of the population that is Hispanic of any race in this part of New Jersey than the New Jersey average. And so the property is a 70 unit multifamily building. Um, and it has all of the units are rent restricted at 60% AMI. And so at the time the project was finished, uh, one bedroom would have cost you $957. Uh, a three bedroom would have cost you $1,600. So Sam, you might just have to move all the way to New Jersey if you want to spend less than three grand on a studio apartment outside of San Francisco. Uh, the train ride from this destination to the city of Newark would be about 45 minutes on the Morris Essex County line and about an hour and 15 minutes to New York Penn Station. And so it is a substantial commute time, but with traffic, it could take you two hours to get to New York. So you could use your your time more productively. And this- you could listen to a podcast episode. <laughs> a couple. Exactly. You could take a nap. You could do a lot of things in an hour and 30 minutes that you cannot do while you're driving. Unless you have a Tesla. Yeah. Then you could do whatever you want. Um, I like this project. So uh, Nat and I, we both work in the the finance side of everything. And so I'm like, okay, but how much did it cost? And who owned the land? And yeah. like, how they get it done? Yeah. Like, what's going on? And so... Like most affordable deals, the capital stack has like some some grants, some government funding, some private lender funding. And so it was a twenty three, a twenty one point three million dollar development cost. They had um, low income housing tax credits from the city of New Jersey. They had a county grant from Morris County. And then they 
got their construction and permanent financing from uh, Freddie Mac, which basically provided like a forward transaction, which nobody cares about. But understand that all of the providers in it were like government adjacent sources. The land talking about bar owning parking lots, NJ Transit also owns a ton of parking lots because it's a commuter rail system. And so NJ Transit sold the land to the developer for a very nominal rate. I think when I went on the uh, tax assessors site it was like three hundred fifty thousand dollars that they could build a twenty one million dollar apartment building. Like, what's the cost basis? And so, all of these entities combined together, um, and then they also benefit from a pilot, which is a payment in lieu of taxes. So, because in New Jersey, there's a state mandate that every town has to provide their fair share of affordable housing. And so if you do so, the town will offer you as a developer a discount or a total abatement on your tax on your property taxes because you're providing a service that they are required to provide, which is affordable housing. And so they are not paying any property taxes either. But thankfully all the units are affordable. And so I just love this project because it is outside of like the core, like the example uh, that Sam provided in the bar is like outside of core San Francisco. This is outside of core New York kind of metro area, but there's still a need. And especially with cities costing so much, people are moving out to the suburbs and not being still not being able to own homes. They're still moving out to the suburbs and looking for rental units just because the cities have gotten so expensive to rent and so expensive to buy in the suburbs, especially with interest rates where they are today are also equally expensive to buy. And so a lot of poverty for lack of a better word and persons of lower incomes have moved into the suburbs. And so you still need to service those areas with transit oriented development. So that's why I just wanted to highlight this to you. Sorry. I really love the highlight of this project in particular, because you brought up a good point about the fact that although we hate the suburbs (laughs) or well, at least I really hate the suburbs, but it is still something we do need to still be providing housing for folks that at this point just cannot afford to live in the central city. And so we do already have so many established suburban pockets that you can be building transit oriented development. And I think that's great. And also the stark number of, I know this is not like, it's going to be horrible that I said it's cheap, but it's crazy how cheap uh, it costs for $21.3 million is so inexpensive for affordable housing development. So I think that's good on New Jersey. Yeah, well, <laughs> you guys, doing? you're developing in, in California. So yeah, just multiply yeah. by three and we'll get to the, exactly. the same number. <laughs> exactly. I'm, you know, I pulled up Dover on the map because New Jersey has over 500 municipalities. So I had to, I had to pull up in my memory, but it's like, I think it was like under 30 miles to get to, um, under 30 miles, I think from Newark, New Jersey and also, um, you know, parts of New Jersey, maybe where you're coming from. So even though the train ride may be long, just where you're living is in proximity. So even if it is on the outskirts, um, I'm sure maybe some of the California suburbs are way over, you know, 30 miles from their, you know, their next major city. Um, So I think the proximity on the, you know, comparing the coast to is interesting. So it's like if you could live 25 miles from 
San Francisco, you might still be paying astronomical numbers, whereas in this pocket in New Jersey, you can be you're living in close proximity um, and still paying paying a little bit less. Um, so to close this out, I'm going to share a little bit about what the Feds is saying when it comes to TOD and what they have been saying for um, the last 10 plus years or so. So the Federal Transit Administration, FTA, um, issues competitive grants for TOD projects, um, also known as discretionary grants, which I think we go into this um, in episode eight of season three, um, America has an infrastructure problem. So TOD first appeared as a grant program through the MAP 21 Act, Moving Ahead for Progress in the 21st Century. So that was in 2012, and that was the first pilot program. Um, And then since 2014, FTA has awarded 129 TOD pilot program grants, totaling 104 million. Um, And so with the, you know, build, I'm going to get this wrong, build better America, um, the infrastructure acts, um, you know, a lot of uh, the Biden administration's priorities to rebuild America's infrastructure. Um, This TOD pilot program looks a little different. Mainly um, previous jurisdictions could only submit pilot program, you know, they can only submit funding requests to do comprehensive planning for TOD or to pay for planning studies that would get them closer to to a TOD project. So I think this pilot um, is really exciting because jurisdictions can actually request funding for capital projects to get work actually done and, you know, shovels in the ground. Um, And specifically, this pilot was announced in August 20. 23. Um, and even at the time we're, um, we're recording this episode, applications have closed. They closed on October 10th. But by the time this episode comes out, the awardees will likely probably be announced. So just a little tidbit there in terms of timing. Um, so $13.5 million to support comprehensive or site-specific planning associated with new fixed guideways. So that's rails, you know, what we've been talking about um, for the last uh, hour. Um, and then core capacity improvement projects, which are things that will increase capacity on any of these um, transit lines over 10%. So these are not things to just do repairs or maintenance costs, but it's intentionally to increase the capacity um, of the train. Um, And so some of the other things that they changed in this specific pilot program is uh, to look at um, affordable housing. So projects usually can get an 80% percent match and then the other 20% has to be locally funded. But if proposals can discuss how the project will reduce regulatory barriers to development of affordable housing, um, include inclusionary zoning, reduce parking standards, um, support affordable rental opportunities, streamline permitting, um, encourage TOD specifically, again, just raising those barriers. Um, If they address homelessness and anti-displacement, so what we were talking about earlier in terms of gentrification, And then there's also priority given for projects that use innovative financing or have a focus in urban rural development. Um, So in the example Jasmine just gave with New Jersey Transit and looking at how it was financed, these those types of projects are um, incentivized and appreciated from the federal funding space. But yeah, I feel like overall this pilot symbolizes that um, we're moving forward in terms of advancing TOD. 
at least the federal government is prioritizing it. Um, over six years, this project also, ha- I think oh, no, over five years, um, this TOD pilot has 38% more funding than um, past um, contributions. Um, so I think both with money and the creativity in developing these programs and the allowable uses, it, it shows that the, the federal government and USCOT and FTA are prioritizing some real TOD um, in the future. We on the Four Degrees Industries podcast like to end our episodes with some takeaways when we have um, either Nemo and I or others on the show. And so is there anything that we're looking forward to with transit oriented development or is there anything that you wanted to you feel like you took away from the conversation uh, that we've just had today? And so, Nemo, I will start with you and then we'll give Sam and Nat the last words. Yeah, I think my main takeaway is that um, TOD does not have to be one size fits all. I think it can address many different things. And I think it does give an opportunity to have creative public private partnerships. It may be slower. Hopefully that gets better um, with more examples and more jurisdictions using, you know, leaning on each other's resources and using other successful examples of how to move forward. Um, um, You know, and I think the, we need to unlearn parking. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is a that is a major takeaway. What I'm looking forward to in terms of TOD is like the quality of the route to the station. I think even with these grant programs, because um, City of Chicago also has a grant program. If the project is not located literally adjacent to the station, similar to my example in Atlanta, what find right? So there's the developer is going to work on his or her financing to get their project off to the ground. The transit station is working on their parcel to make sure that all things are working there. But like, is the city coming behind to make sure that the sidewalks are paved or that there's pedestrian beacons and mid-block, mid-block crossings and all these other things that like once, okay, I leave my apartment building and the station is there, but what is my route like? Similar to what you're talking about, like how do I get there? So I think that kind of wraparound service is something that I've been seeing as lacking in transit-oriented development plans because it seems to be no one's ownership. The developer is not their property and the transit agency is not their property. So who is going to pick up this mantle? It's an amazing question to pose because the concept or what we talk about so frequently in urban planning is this concept that the most ideal experience for anybody living anywhere, whether it be a suburb or a city is to live, work, play in the same space. And so addressing the fact that we're not just sticking housing near transit and saying, perfect, like that's our transit oriented development. We've done our job, but that we're actually having a well-rounded user experience on all levels. So you're not just living there and then taking transit to work, but you have other opportunities where, you know, shopping, grocery shopping, walking around, visiting a public park, going to a coffee shop, like all of these things make a better experience. And I think that's also stems from the concept of the 15 minute city as well. So I think it's just working in tandem with all of those. And I think one of my biggest takeaways from this episode, I feel a lot of optimism for the future of transit oriented development specifically just kind of hearing about a lot of these thought leaders that are coming forward um, in Chicago with the ETOD. 
I think their guidelines and their vision for what transit-oriented development should be or what it should focus and emphasize is extremely important. And then with the FTA's guidelines, when you have it coming from the federal government and you also are backing that with funding that can be available for enhancing projects like this or developing, you know, well-rounded projects, I just have a sense of optimism for what we can make TOD. Um, and I think every project that gets addressed, there's a learning experience behind it, because as I had mentioned earlier, they're not developed similarly whatsoever. And so I think you can learn a lot from these projects that are in existence. Um, so yeah, I'm just very optimistic. I, I think it's ideal for anybody to live near transit because I'm really very much so I wish we could rip all the highways out truthfully, if I'm being honest, but I know that that's not realistic. So opportunities and solutions like transit-oriented development, I think are really great. Kind of going off of what Nemo was saying, I think seeing less parking in cities and less space given to parking is going to be great. California recently passed a law that any development um, within a half mile of public transit cannot be cannot have a parking minimum imposed on it and so now the minimum parking requirement is zero like you don't have to provide mm -hmm. parking if you're within a half mile of transit and we're already starting to see some projects that have like way less than they would have been required or no parking because they're like literally right next to like a caltrain station or a bart station and i think that seeing like way less land like space given to cars and parking is really exciting because like when you think about the percentage of cities that is dedicated to cars it's like jarring um so i feel like we're starting to move in the right direction with that so um sam and nat where can everybody um find you all um uh at, at literally at urban planning is not boring <laughs> <laughs> um but where should listeners find you yeah, so we're, um, we have streaming services offered on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also if you go onto our Instagram, our link in bio basically has every avenue for you to go and listen to us. Um, and we're pretty active on social media. Sam does a really great job of just staying as active as possible on Instagram, um, as well as LinkedIn. And so there are all of our resources where you can find us um, and also avenues that you can listen to our episodes. And we really appreciate it if you do. Yeah. And it's at Urban Planning is not boring, just to clarify. It's like mm -hmm. straight up. Well, thank you for that. Um, and uh, we are at the Four Degrees Pod um, and we drop episodes every other Tuesday. And I know our listeners are going to be really excited to have another not so boring source of information for urban planning. <laughs> wow, I like that. That's a cute one. I like that. That's fun. not so boring. Yeah, it's not boring. That is, is that is boring. fun. Um, well, thank you guys so much for being willing to co-host the podcast episode with the Four Degrees of the Streets podcast. Me, Jasmine, and Nemo are so excited and we look forward to you know sharing ideas and sharing thoughts on this planning space with you guys moving forward we hope your listeners enjoyed the episode we hope our listeners have enjoyed the episode um talk to each other argue about tod in the comments it'll yeah. be a really good time thank you so much for listening we really hope that you enjoyed this episode of urban planning is not boring if you did please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts 
Remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. 